This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program today. Last week we started looking at the text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, by the founder of the Guluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, Lama Tsongkhapa. Here's what Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes about the relevance to Buddhist practitioners. People are motivated by different intentions when they practice the Buddha's teachings. Practice of his teachings is considered authentic from a Buddhist point of view when it's motivated at least by the wish to gain a good rebirth. A practitioner of the initial level engages in practices which make this possible. A practitioner of the intermediate level, he says, wants to be completely free from all rebirths in cyclic existence, that is, rebirths driven by karma and disturbing emotions and concepts. And so a person who wants this personal liberation does practices that lead to that. From the Mayana perspective, such a person becomes an arhat. Then Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, A practitioner of the highest level is motivated by the altruistic intention to become enlightened for the sake of all living beings and does what is necessary to become a fully enlightened Buddha. Even if from the outset we are motivated by the wish to become fully enlightened in order to help others in the most effective way, we must still do the practices associated with the initial and intermediate levels since the insight to which they lead form the foundation for the practices that are unique to the great vehicle. Now the great vehicle refers to the Mahayana tradition. In other words, if you want to become a fully enlightened Buddha, you still have to complete the practices of the person who only wants good rebirths and the per person who wants to become an arhat. Why? Because they are the basis or foundation for the practices that lead to Buddhahood. You can't escape them. And now, having explained the three levels, the level of a person who wants a good rebirth, the level of an arhat, and the level of a person who wants full Buddhahood to help others, Geshe Sonam Rinchen shows how the three principles are important to all of them. He writes, All practices relating to the insights of the initial and intermediate levels concern an understanding of the unsatisfactory and painful nature of cyclic existence and the development of of a wish for freedom. They are therefore subsumed in the first of the three principles, the wish to emerge from cyclic existence. In a word, renunciation. He goes on, When we have fully understood our own plight, strong empathy will easily arise for other living beings who are embroiled in suffering for the same reasons and who fail to find the happiness they desire. A person of great capacity cultivates love, compassion, and supreme altruism, which are included in the second of the, th the principal paths, the altruistic intention 
to become enlightened for the welfare of all living beings. And by that, he means bodhicitta. He goes on to say, Our work for others will not be of true benefit unless we can discern what they need and how to help them. If what we do counteracts both the obstacles formed by the disturbing emotions which prevent freedom and the obstructions to knowledge of all phenomena, we are employing effective means. Otherwise we are not. All the difficulties living beings face spring from ignorance. Those of both the intermediate and great levels of capacity cultivate the correct understanding of reality. And that's the third principle, wisdom. Thus, he says, the practices of all three levels are included within the three principal paths. Listening to, thinking about and meditating on teachings concerning these three is therefore like listening to, thinking about and putting into practice all the Buddha's teachings. And there we have it. If we want to practice the Buddha's teachings, we must approach in one form or another these three principal aspects. Renunciation, therefore, doesn't necessarily mean we have to shave our heads, head into the forest to live in a hut with no door, sleep on a bunch of leaves on the ground, and eat only a few nuts and seeds a day. A monk who does that, but still lusts after computers and chocolate ice cream, or even a nice cup of tea, is still not renounced. However, at the end of the program, Lama Yeshe did say, there are times we have to get up and get out. If you live in a big city and are trapped in a very disturbing situation, it might be hard to find space, he says. In that case, it's better to leave the situation for a while until your confused mind has had a chance to clear itself. That's important, because here the situation itself is making things difficult for you. You're not leaving because you're really renounced, but because you are overloaded, overwhelmed, and without the space to sort out the mess. When you leave such a situation for a while, you can look at it objectively and see more clearly what to do. If you stay, day by day the confusion will build until it completely suffocates you. There's no way that wisdom can grow while you're smothered by the demon of dualistic conceptions. Therefore, it's important to go away for a while, but be skillful when you do so. Real renunciation comes from understanding. Simply moving away is not true renunciation. Many people already do this. When troubles come, they go somewhere else. And that's our style. Even our idea of a holiday is that you can get away from your usual problems. You mean well, but it's not true renunciation. On the other hand, many Buddhist meditators have done the same thing, going to secluded places to escape from samsaric situations. It depends on how you manage your life, how you cope with normal situations. But then he goes on to say that if we want to shift our present level of consciousness to a higher one, we do need a long period of peaceful tranquility to practice intensive awareness. That's why I always recommend that every year my students spend at least 10 days in retreat, renouncing all their worldly relationships for a period of strong meditation, he says. Cutting off completely for 10 days is not too much, but at least it will give you a taste of renunciation. If you don't experience the peace and tranquility of at least this level of renunciation, it will have no reality for you and you won't be convinced of its benefits. 
Renunciation will be just something else that you've heard of. Experience is the most important thing. That's how you find solution to your problems. Our problems are so deeply rooted in our unconscious that it takes tremendous energy to eradicate them. It's certainly not a short, one-time job. So, perhaps we should all factor into our year's activities a few days of meditation retreat. But now, before we continue with the program, let's consider our motivation as usual to make our time together as beneficial as possible. The best motivation is, of course, bodhicitta, the wish to benefit all living beings in the best way we can, and to that end, attain enlightenment. Why? Because an enlightened being is the most powerful when it comes to helping others. However, if you don't feel capable of taking responsibility for all beings, at least let this program become the cause for your own swift and complete liberation from suffering. Please motivate in either of these two ways. Thank you. Now when we come to the text itself, we will have more to say about how to develop renunciation. But now let's move on to a brief understanding of the second of the principal aspects of the path, bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the lifeblood of the Mahayana tradition. And for those uncertain about what I mean by the Mahayana, we can think back to what I said about motivation. Buddhism, as we know it, is divided into two main broad traditions, the Theravada and the Mahayana. The difference is that those who follow Theravada are intent on their own liberation from suffering, as an arhat, while those on the Mahayana path take on the responsibility to attain enlightenment to free all beings from suffering. That intention is called bodhicitta. It has two main aspects, the aim to free all beings from their sufferings, even the slightest, and the intention to attain enlightenment as the best way to, to, to fulfill that aim. Thus, as Theravadins follow the Buddhist path for their own enlightenment, Mahayanists do for, for the enlightenment of all living beings. Now many books and articles have been written about bodhicitta and how to develop it, and if you've been following this program for the last two or so years, you will have got quite a detailed exposition on it. Shantideva's Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life is probably the most admired text studied by the Tibetan monks on the subject of bodhicitta and how to develop and maintain it. So perhaps at this point we should just start that text again from the beginning and work through it for the next three years. I'm just joking. But I am going to follow what Lama Yeshi has to say about bodhicitta, which is a little different from the traditional way it's, pre it's presented. Lama Yeshi had a very good grasp of the Western way of thinking, which sometimes doesn't quite gel with the traditional Tibetan monastic explanations. Just before we go on, please be certain about what bodhicitta is. Often Westerners get the idea that it's being kind and compassionate to all beings, but that's only part of it. Bodhicitta is the mind that one wants to help all beings and two aspires to attain enlightenment to do that. Commonly, the intention is expressed, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. You can see that this is much more than just being kind and compassionate. Lama Yeshi follows on from what Geshe Sonam Rinchen said about contemplating our own problematical life. 
Before we can even think about real love and compassion, never mind bodhicitta, we have to come to grips with the way our mind works, especially how it automatically slots people into categories according to whether we like, dislike or dismiss them. Bodhicitta is like this, Lama Yeshi says. First, you have to understand your own ego problems, craving, desire, anger, impatience, your own situation, your inability to cope, your own disasters, within yourself and feel compassion for yourself. Because of the situation you're in, start by becoming the object of your own compassion. It begins from there. This situation I'm in, I'm not the only one with ego conflict and problems. In all the world's societies, some people are upper class, some middle and others low. Some are extremely beautiful, some are medium and others are ugly. But just like me, everybody seeks happiness and does not desire to be miserable. In this way, a feeling of equilibrium begins to come. Somehow, deep within you, equilibrium towards enemies, strangers and friends arises. It's not merely intellectual, but something really sincere. It comes from deep down, from the bottom of your heart. Buddhism teaches you the meditational technique for equalizing living beings in the universe. Without a certain degree of equilibrium, feeling with all universal living beings, it's impossible to say, I want to give my life to others. Nor is it possible to develop bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is most precious, a diamond mind. In order to have space for bodhicitta, you have to feel that all universal living beings are equal. But I want you to understand the distinction between the communist and the Buddhist idea of equality. It's possible for you to experience the Buddhist idea of equilibrium right now. You can't experience the communist idea even after a billion years, unless everybody has a gun. It's not possible. The point is that Buddhism considers that we should have realization of equilibrium because we need a healthy mind. Equalizing others is something to be done within my mind, not by changing human beings externally. My business is not to be bothered by mental projections of disliked enemy, grasped at friend or forgettable stranger. These three categories of object are made by my own mind. They do not exist outside. Now here I'd just like to put in a word about what Lama Yeshi calls the disliked enemy, the grasped at friend and the forgettable stranger. Basically, our instinctual way of re reacting to people is to categorize them as friend, enemy and stranger. If someone pleases us in some way, we tend to slot them into friend. If they displease us, we slot them into enemy and if we don't care either way, they become stranger. Now, friend and enemy don't have to be driven by powerful emotions. Enemy, for instance, is quite a strong word for most of us. It means someone we really hate. But it doesn't mean that here. It can even mean someone we just have a mild dislike for. For instance, a politician whose policies we don't agree with. When we think about that person, we tend to meld him or her with the policies and thus develop a dislike for the person, even though we don't know them at all. We will tend to see negative qualities even if the person is the nicest being in the world. That's how our mind projects. Well, what do you think of President George Bush when he was in office? His Holiness met him and found him very agreeable. 
even though His Holiness disagreed with his policies. Our mind will also project good qualities onto the politician whose policies we agree with, even though their general behavior may leave much to be desired. Of course, the categories will necessarily contain friends we really feel attached to and people we truly despise, but don't think those are the only people in sections friend and enemy. So although Lama Yeshi uses strong words such as desire and hatred, we must understand that in this context they have a wider meaning than what we normally give to them in English. Remember, he was teaching in Tibetan, which was being translated. And, for instance, in English, we don't really have a non-derogatory description of someone that is mildly despised. Anyway, he continues, As long as you have an object of hatred, even one human being, as long as you have an overestimated object of craving desire, as long as you have an indifferent object of ignorance, someone you ignore and don't care about, as long as you have the three poisons of hatred, desire and ignorance in relation to these three objects, you have a problem. It's not the object's problem. He goes on to point out that equilibrium is not just behaving nicely. It's an inner experience. Forget about bodhicitta. We all have a long way to go, he says. What I'm trying to express is Tibetan Buddhism and Lama Tsongkhapa con consider that equilibrium is the most difficult to realize so it's worthwhile to at least try. Even though it's difficult, just try. He says that another way of describing equilibrium is to call it the middle way and uses religions to explain what he means. We should have an equalized feeling and respect for people who practice Christianity, he says. That's the way to be happy and happiness is your main business. I think it's a mistake for Western baby Buddhists to think that Buddhism is better than Christianity. It's wrong. First of all, it's not true, and secondly, it creates bad vibrations and makes your mind unhealthy. You should practice equilibrium in your daily life as much as you can. Try to have neither enemies nor objects of tremendous exaggerated grasping. In this way, in the space of your equilibrium, you can grow bodhicitta, the attitude dedicated to all universal living beings. Bodhicitta is an extremely high realization. It is the complete opposite of the self-cherishing attitude. You completely give yourself into the service of others in order to lead them to the highest liberation, which is beyond temporary happiness. Our thoughts are extreme. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on and tremendous energy into activities from which we gain nothing. Look at certain athletes, for example, or people who put all their money into motorcycle jumping and end up killing themselves. What for? Now, I was thinking about what Lama Yeshi said here, and it is true that people put a lot of energy and talent into things that are basically worthless. Of course, such people may attain temporary glory, but while the mind is not focused on the long term, that is, future lives, liberation or Buddhahood, it's basically all wasted effort. However, I also thought that should people habituate their minds to such great discipline and effort, enduring much pain to become a top sports person, for instance, they will have powerful habits to fall back on if they come across and wish to practice something like the Dharma. Already their minds will be well trained to reach their goals, so they may from the start be better practitioners than other people who are more relaxed in outlook. Therefore maybe we should not be too skeptical of people who work hard for unsatisfactory aims. 
but instead strongly wish that they become inspired to practice for meaningful goals like enlightenment. In any case, Lama Yeshe goes on to say that while we have the self-cherishing attitude, it's like we have a nail or sword in our heart. It always feels uncomfortable. With Bodhicitta, from the moment you begin to open, you feel incredibly peaceful and you get tremendous pleasure and inexhaustible energy, he says. Forget about enlightenment. As soon as you begin to open yourself to others, you gain tremendous pleasure and satisfaction. Working for others is very interesting. It's an infinite activity. Your life becomes continuously rich and interesting. You can see how easily Western people get bored. As a result, they take drugs and so forth. They're easily bored. They can't see what else to do. It's not that people who take drugs are necessarily unintelligent. They do have intelligence, but they don't know where to put their energy, so that it is beneficial to society and themselves. They're blocked. They can't see. Therefore, they destroy themselves. Now remember that this comes from a teaching by Lama Yeshe in 1982. I think that if the East was less given to Enui at that time, it might have caught up to the West now. For many of the West's problems, drugs and so on, seem to have become global. Even when I was in Dharamsala, in the days when I was newly ordained, taking refuge in drugs was becoming quite a problem among Tibetan youth in India. Many Indians looked down upon the Tibetans, and so it's difficult for the Tibetans to make much material advancement outside of their own communities. With the difficulties in Tibet and prospects bleak in India, Tibetan youth find themselves in much the same situation as Lamia Yeshi describes, disenfranchised and bored, and then some turn for solace to alcohol and drugs. I met one or two of these, and it was sad that they couldn't use their heritage through the Buddha's teachings to bolster themselves. Another point that maybe Lama Yeshi missed about Westerners is that through their Christian heritage, they do know about giving selflessly to others. It's not as though Westerners always just think of themselves. Many work tirelessly for others. We can just think of Mother Teresa as a supreme example. However, when we think of working for others, we commonly also think it means not taking care of ourselves. And that's a big mistake. Taking care of others does mean first taking care of yourself, as is suggested in the beginning of Lama Yeshi's teaching. It's no good to work tirelessly for others, as I've seen people do, to the point where you become completely burnt out. That's not skillful. Maybe a Buddha or great Bodhisattva can work without rest like that, but most of us are not there yet by a long shot. So working for others means knowing when to take a break, and sometimes that means a big break so that we can return re-energized. Anyway, for those of us less able to give up self-grasping, Lama Yeshi goes on to suggest a different approach to bodhicitta. If you don't want to understand bodhicitta as an attitude dedicated to others, he says, and sometimes it can be difficult to understand it that way, you can also think of it as a selfish attitude. Why? In practice, when you begin to open yourself to others, you find that your heart is completely tied. Your eye or your ego is tied. Lama J. Tsongkhapa described the ego as an iron net of self-grasping. And we'll come to this when we start reading the text itself, as this quote comes from the three principal aspects of the path. Lama Yeshi continues, 
How do you loosen these bonds? When you begin to dedicate yourself to others, you yourself experience unbelievable peace, unbelievable relaxation. Therefore, I'm saying, with a selfish attitude of wanting to experience that peace and relaxation, you can practice dedicating yourself to others. What really matters is your attitude. If your attitude is one of openness and dedication to all universal living beings, it's enough to relax you. In my opinion, having an attitude of bodhicitta is much more powerful and much more practical in a Western environment than squeezing yourself in meditation. Anyway, our 20th century lives don't allow us time for too much for meditation. Even if we try, we're sluggish. I was up too late last night. Yesterday I worked so hard. I really believe that the strong, determined, dedicated attitude of Every day for the rest of my life, and especially today, I will dedicate myself to others as much as I possibly can, is very powerful. Some people's attitude to meditation is that they want some kind of concrete concentration right now. It's not possible to develop concrete concentration in a short time without putting your life together. If you don't organize your life, how can you be a good meditator? It's not possible. And then, in another teaching at Kopan Monastery in 1983, actually his last teaching, Lama Yeshe implied that the way to get your life in order is to develop bodhicitta. Without bodhicitta, he said, nothing works, and most of all, your meditation doesn't work and realizations don't come. Why is bodhicitta necessary for success in meditation? Because of self-grasping. If you have a good meditation but don't have bodhicitta, you will grasp at any little experience of bliss. Me, me, I want more, I want more. Then the good experience disappears completely. Grasping is the greatest distraction to experiencing single-pointed intensive awareness and meditation. And with it, we're always dedicated to our own happiness. Me, me, I'm miserable, I want to be happy, therefore I'll meditate. It doesn't work that way. For some reason, good meditation and its results peacefulness, satisfaction and bliss just don't come. Now, I'm not altogether sure about this because our hearts achieve their great results without bodhicitta. It's not as though nothing works without bodhicitta. And certainly, we can give up grasping at blissful experiences without bodhicitta. What is needed is the realization that those experiences are temporary and impermanent, as oneself is also without a real inherent self. Then the grasping can be given up. However, bodhicitta is certainly a very great help in giving up self-grasping and self-cherishing. But it is wisdom that finally relinquishes those two. And now we're out of time, so we must part. Thank you for joining the program today. I hope it's been of some benefit. Please dedicate any positive potential we've generated to the enlightenment of all beings. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering.
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.